welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for October 9th to 15th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during this week in psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Thomas Blass on the shocking obedience experiments of Stanley Milgram. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. October 9th, in 1968, Roger Sperry's article, Hemisphere Deconnection and Unity in Conscious Awareness, was published in The American Psychologist. Sperry was then awarded the Nobel Prize on this same date in 1981. Also on October 9th, 1968, based partially on evidence linking criminal behavior with the presence of an extra Y chromosome in men, Lawrence E. Hanel was acquitted of murder in the fatal stabbing of a 77-year-old woman in Melbourne, Australia. Just five days later, a similar ruling in France made XYY males a pressing legal and psychiatric issue. Also on October 9th, in 1981, David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel won Nobel Prizes for their work in visual development. They performed pioneering single-cell recordings of the visual cortex, demonstrating the presence of simple, complex, and hyper-complex feature detector cells. For October 11th, in 1976, Sandra Wood Scar and Richard A. Weinberg's article, IQ Test Performance of Black Children Adopted by White Families, was published in The American Psychologist. The IQ score gains they reported were a strong argument for an environmentalist view of intelligence. For October 12th, in 1773, the first U.S. public mental hospital, the Public Hospital for Persons of Insane and Disordered Minds, opened in Williamsburg, Virginia. It moved in the 1960s, but continues today as Eastern State Hospital. Also, for October 12th, in 1966, Robert Rosenthal's book, Experimenter Effects in Behavioral Research, was published. On October 15, 1963, an article appeared in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology that would change the course of the field. A young Yale professor named Stanley Milgram reported, wildly contrary to Americans' image of themselves as fiercely independent individuals, that nearly all of a sample of ordinary citizens could easily be persuaded not only to deliver electric shocks to a fellow citizen, but that two-thirds of them would continue to do so up to an apparently lethal level. All it took was the insistence of an authoritative-looking person, such as a scientist in a white coat. To discuss this electrifying outcome, and Stanley Milgram himself, is Professor Thomas Blass of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, who is the author of The Man Who Shocked the World, The Life and Legacy of Stanley Milgram, published by Basic Books in 2004. 
So, Professor Blass, could you please tell us what sort of man Stanley Milgram was? What in his personal background or, or training led him to become interested in the topic of obedience to authority? Well, I mean, he's, um, if you ask what kind of man he was, uh, we can talk about his personality, which, um, uh, which was very complex, and um, he was uh, very creative. He was some people, many people called him a genius. Um, he was largely driven by curiosity as opposed to um, theory. He was very atheoretical, um, which actually, um, uh, for which he was really a target of criticism among much of mainstream social psychology. But in terms of the, um, he was funny too, by the way, <laughs> very funny, zany. And in some ways, uh, the obedience experiment, um, in my judgment, is kind of um, atypical given his um, much of his research has kind of game-like, almost game-like quality. But uh, to get specifically uh, to the um, what in his background led him to study obedience, I mean, there are two, I think at least two converging factors. One of them, and you, one has to do with his personal background and, and also his, uh, his educational background. Personal background is has to do with the fact that um, he was, he wanted to fathom um, how the Holocaust could, take, to, could have taken place. I mean, here's a cultured nation of Germans um, who um, became engaged in a concerted effort to uh, destroy the Jewish people and almost succeeded by killing six million of them. And, um, and so, I mean, I think anybody who learns about it is, is disturbed, but I think he has special um, uh, interest because, first of all, he, was, he himself was Jewish, and secondly, he, during the war, there were still some family uh, members who were stuck in Europe, and uh, the family always listened closely to the radio developments. As it turns out, according to his family, whom I interviewed, um, everybody survived. Uh, they managed to escape or Live through the war. So one 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 um, um, one precipitating factor was an attempt to understand the Holocaust. And well, what does what does obedience to authority have to do with that? Well, um, it was well known that one of the prime values in, in German culture, German society, going back for quite a quite a long time, was uh, the, the supreme value put on obedience to authority, blind reflexive obedience to authority, and. Um, so it was a logical um, dynamic, if you were to pursue. Secondly, the, in terms of background, academic background, uh, he um, had close contact with Ash, Solomon Ash, a very talented, creative individual in his own right who was known for a number of things, one of which was his classic work on conformity, mm -hmm. um, using ostensibly a visual uh, uh, discrimination task, subjects, uh, subjects are given on uh, each trial a set of three lines of different lengths and a fourth line, and the task is to indicate which of the three lines, the fourth line, is equivalent in, then, is equivalent in length. And um, the, there was only really, really one, one naive subject among the group of five or six others. Others were Confederates who, on critical trials, gave an incorrect match. And the true purpose of the experiment was not about visual perception, but whether the naive subject would yield to the judgments of the, of the majority. And surprisingly, they did about a one-third of the time. So Milgram actually had um, uh, 
very intimate knowledge of the of the uh, of the conformity research of Ash because he had worked with him a couple a couple instances. He was um, Milgram got his graduate training at Harvard, Department of Social Relations, a very unique program, multidisciplinary program. Um, and one year, um, 1955, uh, 56, um, Solomon Ash came as a visiting lecturer to Harvard, okay. and the chairman of the program, Gordon Allport, assigned Milgram to be Ash's research and teaching assistant. So. Uh, that gave him close contact with Ash and, and his ideas and his approach, and specifically the, the conformity research. And then, secondly, uh, there was another year of contact with Ash at um, Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. After Milgram had collected his data for his dissertation, Ash invited him to help him edit the book that he was writing, that is, Ash was writing on, um, on his conformity research. And um, so, so now, so what does it have to do with the thing? He, uh, he he describes this in one of his writings. He says, "I was thinking about the Ash experiment and how to make it something more consequential, something more more humanly significant. I mean, you know, beyond judging lengths and lines. Like, for example, what would happen if a group would pressure somebody, an individual, to act in an antisocial manner toward a." another individual. Mm-hmm. And then as mind wandered, he says, um, well, I was, well, okay, if I do that, what, what, what would be my comparison? What would be my, my control? And then logically he said, um, well, he thought it would be one person uh, directing another individual to hurt a third person. And he calls this an incandescent moment that he realized that this was the, the central question that he was going to deal with. What would happen if one person in an authority commanded another individual to hurt a third person? Mm-hmm. So, All right. Well, I think most people are familiar with the outline of, of the Milgram obedience experiment, but when Milgram mm-hmm. asked his own colleagues about what the likely outcome of a study like this would be, a uh, few of them believed that anything would come of it. Is that right? I did not come across any um, specific statement in the archives or anywhere about what the expectations of his colleagues were. But what did happen, and he writes about this, is that after he ran, um, he did some piloting of his procedure with, uh, uh, with college students. Um, this was a project of his small groups class. Uh, he described the outcome, which was fairly surprising, um, and in fact um, pretty much matched uh, the percentage of obedience, more or less, what he ended up finding in his main series. So, anyway, when he described it, uh, his findings to his colleagues, they kind of downplayed it. They said, hey, you know, what are you telling me? You know, Yale, Yale College students, they're so competitive, they would readily step on each other's necks, you know, just to get ahead. So I'm not surprised if, you know, after the fact, of course, Monday morning quarterbacking, mm-hmm. I'm not surprised as to what he get. So he took that criticism to heart, and he during the main series of studies of experiments, he actually went as far away from the college population as possible. And as uh, you well know, the um, main series consisted of volunteers from the community, from New Haven and surrounding areas. 
Well, so after the the first series of studies showed that roughly two-thirds of seemingly normal American citizens were willing to administer shocks to a total stranger right up to an apparently lethal level, my understanding Mm -hmm. is that this result was so counterintuitive that some people began to argue that the authority of a professor at an Ivy League school was, in fact, too powerful to be very meaningful. And so so Milgram moved his experiments away to less prestigious venues with less awesome authority figures. Could you tell us a bit about uh, those studies? He reports that... um some of the subjects told them post-experimentally that the reason they, they obeyed was because it had something to do with the with the credibility, the prestige, the aura of, uh, you know, the, the almost the sense of awe they, they had for, for, for Yale. And, and if it hadn't been within the confines of Yale, they probably would not have gone all the way. So he wanted to find out whether, in fact, uh, to what extent the prestige of Yale was a factor. And so what he did was he actually rented a, an office suite in the heart of Bridgeport, an industrial town not far from from New Haven, about a half an hour away, and he replicated the condition. Um, and and, and, and the, the setup was totally dissociated from Yale. Uh, subjects would be recruited much the same way as they did for the others, but without any visible association to Yale. The letter had said research associates at Bridgeport, and when subjects came to the to the laboratory there, that's what the um, sign downstairs said, that's what the sign said on the desk of the experimenter. So there was absolutely no academic link, certainly no link to Yale. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he found, um, and so this, he did this in response to the point that you, that you made, there, which was raised by subjects. and. What he found was actually there was a decrement, um, but not one that's significant. In other words, um, the, the variation that he did, he did he carried out um, in Bridgeport was a so-called uh, heart problem uh, variation where there's voice feedback uh, in which the, uh, the learner confederate compa- uh, complains of a heart condition. That, in, at Yale, yielded a... Um, an obedience rate of 65%. Mm-hmm. At Bridgeport, that dropped to 47.5%. Mm-hmm. Now, clearly there was a drop, but he reports, and I actually did a statistical analysis of myself, uh, was not statistically significant. So, yes, on the one hand, clearly some um, there was some uh, something about Yale that contributed to the um, impact of the uh, authority, provided back, you know the background. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it added to the power of the authority, but clearly it was not in and of itself um, the deciding factor because, I mean, you know, 47 and 48% itself is not trivial. We're talking no. about almost 50% of the people. Now, these studies, I would think, could not ever be carried out, could not be replicated today. That They, they mm-hmm. would never be able, they, they would never be accepted by the ethics committees that psychological researchers are now required to clear. Um, indeed, as fascinating as they were, they are now often cited as classic unethical studies. So I mm-hmm. wonder if, if you know when the concerns about the ethics of this research began to surface, and, and when did the view of them really begin to change within the psychological community? Reaction was almost immediate. Um, the, the, the most Well, there are two things. One was an odd reaction, an odd source. Um, the very first um, reaction against the ethics of it came from a very unlikely source, an editorial in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, mm-hmm. which came out a few weeks after um, 
a few weeks after the appearance of the journal article um, in October of 1963, lambasted Milgram and Yale for putting subjects through the harrowing experience that they they were put through. Mm-hmm. Then, on a, on a more professional level, Baumrind, Diana Baumrind, a development psychologist at Berkeley, wrote a scathing, um, and Milgram called it a stinging criticism article in the American Psychologist. And um, Baumrind took um, Milgram to task for two things. Number one, deception. What right did you have to fool subjects into you know, believing one thing and actually doing something else? That is believing that you were studying, believing that you were hurting somebody, and actually you weren't. Uh, but also the stress um, that he had created for the participants. She also took him to task for um, eroding trust. I mean, how can they trust authorities once they've been deceived? Mm-hmm. So that was, and, and Milgram was given an opportunity uh, to um, to write a rebuttal, which was quite. Um, I think very substantive and worth reading by students. And um, so that rebuttal, actually, just want to mention that besides arguing on logical grounds that he essentially um, uh, was uh, okay, uh, that is, uh, I mean, he mentioned for, he, he did not intend stress. He says there are experiments which in which stress is the goal, where people receive tetanizing shocks, you know, to mm-hmm. see to, uh, avoidance, conditioning, learning experiments, things of that sort. He said, I did not intend stress. Uh, once I did see it, I had a decision to make as to whether to continue. My judgment was that people were not getting harmed. And to his credit, and no matter, I think, where one stands on the ethics of Milgram's research, to his credit, I, I should mention that, number one, he did a couple of things that were... Um, ahead of his time. Um, number one, in his grant proposal for N- to NSF, which funded the research, he actually had a section on on care of the, su- human, of, the human, of the subjects in the experiment and was looking out for them, for their well-being. Secondly, which I don't think was very typical, but the other thing which was definitely not typical was he sent a follow-up questionnaire and a description uh, to his subjects two or three months after their participation. Mm-hmm. You get feedback. Where are they now? You know, six months later, how do they feel? Right. Because of criticism, right? And so, and um, many, there were a number of questions in there. One of them had to do with how glad or sorry that you were in the experiment. So, you know, urban myth has it that, uh, I mean, all kinds of stuff. I've heard all kinds of strange things, like uh, um, one myth that has swirled around uh, was that uh, when the men went home to their wives, those who had obeyed, uh, the wives divorced them. Uh, you know, so, but but the truth of the matter is, um, the questionnaire revealed one of the questions had to do with how glad or sorry that you've been in the experiment. To have been in the experiment, and uh, if you look at sorry and very sorry, you get a grand total of something like 1.5 percent saying that you know mm-hmm. sorry, very sorry. So the, although there were complaints about the ethics uh, uh, from out, people outside of the experiment, the subjects within didn't seem to regret the fact that they had participated for the most part. M- most of them did not. Most of them said they were. Well, that are very glad, some like 80, 84% of them, if you combine glad and, and very glad. Although these studies are among the most cited and most talked about, and, mm-hmm. and certainly the most interesting, uh, among the most interesting in the history of social psychology, um, Milgram himself was not actually able to obtain tenure at Yale, ultimately. Is that correct? Well, and actually, he... no. If I may just correct it slightly. Mm-hmm. Did, uh, at Yale, he could have had tenure. Um, he was actually he, he had a three-year contract when he first came. Was hired an assistant professor with a three-year contract, with the understanding that he would be, you know, up for renewal at the end of three years. 
Well, he was renewed, actually, and got a highly supportive letter from Gordon Hallport, one of the giants, both literally and metaphorically, of American psychology, father mm-hmm. of both, considered one of the founders of both social psychology and personality. And he compared, he says, although, you know, one can raise questions about, um, you know, his manner, I mean, one, he said, he, in fact, he used the language something like, his audacity is comparable to Leon Festinger and Stanley Schachter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he could have stayed on. Um, uh, but he did not. Then he went on, but, but he chose to go on to Harvard because that's where he got his degree. He loved Harvard. Harvard was, in his mind, in his judgment, uh, the ac- academic Eden. There was no mm-hmm. other place like it. So uh, he, an opening came up and he went back, was invited back to come back by Gordon Allport, by Roger Brown, one of the greats of, in social psychology, came back. And then when he came up for tenure, in 1967, 66-67, after an extremely long, drawn-out deliberation by the committee, he was turned down. There were some people who still held the ethics of the obedience experiment against him. That was tremendously, tremendously disappointing to him. Uh, he became um, uh, he became depressed. As a result of that, I mean, he had hoped he could stay on. Mm-hmm. The depression and disappointment was compounded by the fact that um, um, desirable um, placements that he was hoping to get if he had to leave Harvard were not did not materialize. None of the great places um, really gave him an offer at the university. He was hoping if he had to leave Harvard, he would go to a place like University of Chicago, Berkeley, or, you know. He did get interviewed a couple of those places, but by this time, it was so controversial that... Um, there was no way that a, a prestigious university where you hiring is decided by vote, no way that he could get um, the majority needed to be hired. So he ended up actually going to CUNY, a graduate program. He was offered a pro, um, position at um, the newly developed social psychology program at City University of New York, where he became chairman of the program. And in some ways, um, that turned out he was there till his death in 1984. In some ways, it turned out to be one of his most productive um, part of his career, although much of the research he did there, which was very inventive, um, most of it is not as well-known as, as his... Um, nothing is as well-known as his obedience that's, research. That's right. Um, well, then, so to, to sum up, what do you think the legacy of, of Milgram's work and the somewhat strange arc of his career is for psychology? What do you think students should take away from his story? Well, I mean, I think students as well, all, all of us, as far as the strange arc of his career, I'm not sure what to say about that. I think, well, first, okay, what students should take away, um, I'm just answering two different ways. In terms of career, if you talk about a psychology career, how should psychology students look at things? I think I think it, what he teaches us is ultimately progress in, in an academic setting is a balancing act. And balancing act between following your own rights and, uh, and also sensitive to norms. On a broader level, I think both students and everybody, I think all of us can take away the central lessons of his research, which is number one, uh, the unexpected power of authority. I mean, that's the uh, main revelatory finding. We did not know. He taught us something we did not know. We knew that we didn't need Milgram to tell us that we obey authority. We knew that, but what we didn't know is just how powerful that tendency is, so powerful as to override 
our moral principles. I mean, we have a tendency to think that there's a direct line between the kind of person we are and what we do. Our moral principles, if we're good people, we do good things. If we're bad people, we do bad things. What Milgram said is our moral principles is just one of a set of uh, convergent factors that, that lead to what, how we behave. And very often, the immediate situation uh, is, can override those dispositional factors. Well, thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us today. We've been speaking with Professor Thomas Blass of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, who is the author of The Man Who Shocked the World, The Life and Legacy of Stanley Milgram, published by Basic Books in 2004. And now it's time to celebrate a few birthdays on This Week in the History of Psychology. On October 9, 1884, Helen Deutsch was born. Deutsch was instrumental in founding the Vienna Psychoanalytic Institute in 1925 and was its director for the first 10 years. Also on October 9, 1900, Joseph Zubin was born. Zubin's most significant work was a theory of schizophrenia based on the statistical analysis of various biological, psychological, and social measurements. He also shared in the discovery of the P300 event-related brain potential. For October 12th, in 1867, Boris Sidis was born. Sidis, a personality and abnormal psychologist, was one of the first American psychologists to study the unconscious motivation of behavior. Also on October 12th, in 1874, Abraham Arden Brill was born. Brill was the first to translate many of Sigmund Freud's works into English for American readers. For October 13th, in 1881, Albert Edward Michaud was born. His gestalt-based research was on the perception of causation. Best known is his animated film in which two geometrical figures appear to chase each other around the screen. For October 15th, in 1783, Francois Majendie was born. Majendie is primarily known for his discovery of the differentiation of sensory and motor spinal nerves. And finally, also on October 15th in 1884, Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche was born. Nietzsche developed a theory of human motivation that emphasized the primacy of an instinctive will to power, repressed and disguised by reason. And that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or York University.